0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a
2: thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless it to get 30 30 bit to get 30 bit to get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so
1: give it a try at mintmobile.com switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promo for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com
3: i'm ewan morrison i'm a novelist and essayist and Occasional scriptwriter, and I tend to be bothered about the way things are and how we got here.
2: Glad Culver and welcome to Spokes. In this episode I'm chatting to the Scottish novelist, screenwriter and essayist Ewan Morrison. He has written 7 novels including his latest Nina X, which is the story of a girl who's raised in a cult and almost completely isolated from the outside world until she escapes at the age of 28. The book won the 2019 Saltire Scottish Book of the Year award. Ewan has so many other awards and accolades that I can't even include them all here. He's a three-times BAFTA nominee. i would put all of the other information in the show notes. He has also written articles for the top UK newspapers and for international magazines, including Psychology Today. And he has a TEDx talk about utopia. The main focus in this chat is about how good intentions can have unforeseen and even negative consequences. We chat about idealism, his book Nina X, about cults, love bombing and about group think. I began by asking him where exactly in Scotland he is at the moment.
3: I'm out in Argyll and Butte, which is a, a very quiet, you know, it's, near, it's just up from the Mull of Kintyre, made famous by Paul McCartney.
2: Ah. And where are you?
3: You're in Ireland somewhere, I take it.
2: Yeah, I'm uh, up in County Wicklow in a, in a rural setting. Lovely. Of fields and lanes. Yes, we
3: have all that as Britain. well. We have mm. um, our lanes are so bad that the suspension fell out of my car last week and I had to get a new car. So, uh,
2: right pothole <laughs> central. Yes, pros and cons to the countryside. It, it, yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, I've been following you for a few years on Twitter. Mm. And you post lots of really interesting things and art. And mm. you also write for Psychology Today. And a few weeks ago, you posted a link to your article, The Road to Hell. Mm-hmm. And I think I had read it before. But when I read it this time, I was like, I have to get him on the podcast.
3: <laughs> yes. I should probably pull the article up, actually, so that I can... Re- um, yeah, no, The Road to Hell. Uh, that's my sort of philosophy of life, really. Yeah. Um, which it sometimes takes a long time to boil these things down um, into a, a couple of thousand words. But it's been years of research, really, and uh, trying to work out a set of paradoxes and problems that arose in my upbringing through idealistic parents. You know? um, so I was burdened with the question of why does idealism not work um, as a child, um, and I, it's it's taken a long time to to work that out through a lot of historical and philosophical reading, really.
2: So even as a child, and do you think that you had that idea?
3: Well, it's simply a question of watching your idealistic parents fail and collapse um, through the, the the force of their ideals. Um, my parents were 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 sort of hippie pioneers, and in the far north of Scotland, and they held a real mixed bag of utopian beliefs from the 1960s. Like what kind of stuff? Well, like uh, the idea that the nuclear family is oppressive, even though you have kids yourself. The idea that you can bring culture to the masses, the masses are asleep and slumbering and they need to be uh, taught um, progressive politics. The idea that uh, an independent Scottish nation could, could become a utopia of planned uh, you know a planned society um, when that that when a country falls into the hands of the idealists they will they will turn it into a um, a much better, more just equitable place um, there was free love, I suppose as well uh drug taking the whole rag bag of kind of um uh, kind of dissenting activities against the powers that be. so I was bred with a bunch of phrases which you know my parents were not far away from the s d s and the vil and the weather underground and the kind of things they would talk about and the kind of people who 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 would um hang around with us so so uh I grew up just watching watching them fall apart and watching their ideas turn to garbage um, and realising that it all had a very damaging effect on me and my sister. So, I mean, they they would always say, even as things were collapsing, that they, they had pure ideals and that they had, you know, good intentions and the problem was just the world. Um, but... Um, you know, over time and through research and looking at where they came from, where hippies came from, tracing it back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and earlier, um, I worked out that this, this, this internal problems in, in the project of political idealism itself.
2: I was going to actually ask you that, about where did their ideas, so did they themselves read Rousseau or were there other things that they were reading at that time? Well,
3: it's an interesting thing, isn't it, when people try to trace back the history of... Progressivist politics, where did it really come from? I don't think that my parents were aware of Rousseau so, in as much as the same way that I don't think Marx was fully aware of the indebtedness that that Engels had to the Anabaptists, you know um, uh, and how the entire um, progressive project rests you know has its birth really within Protestantism. It's not. It's not really understood. Well, anyway, so my so my parents. I think uh, they they were talking uh, Huxley, A. E. F. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful. That was one of my dad's Bibles, um, and that was you know you sort of dig in as well to to Thoreau, Emerson, uh, the the American progressive tradition as well that. These were things which were floating around. I, I, I don't real. I don't think that the hippies really realised the full history of what they were taking on board as well. The, for example, the eighteenth century experiments in communality, um, the the, two hundred and ten I think um utopian towns built in, um the Americas in the eighteenth and nineteenth century, um, which 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 all failed, of course. But, um they were all about things like free love, communality, um, uh you know uh, communal care of children as well. you know all these experiments were done um in the eighteen fifties um was There was a huge spike of interest in these things so it was it was fascinating to me to discover that the hippie project was kind of a repeat it was a variation of some things which were tried by originally, um, re- you know, religious utopian um, beforehand. But I don't think that most hippies would be aware of that. It's, it's, it's just an evolving tradition, a kind of recurrent theme of utopianism that flows throughout history.
2: Kind of the idea that there is such a thing or a possibility of uh, universal peace and that is, it, is it almost the idea that human beings are fundamentally good? Yes, yes, and,
3: exactly. As Rousseau said, you know, um, we're, uh, we're born free but are everywhere in chains. I think that's, uh, maybe it's a line that runs through the population. I don't know, maybe half of the population think that people are born inherently good and half of the population think not. Um, but certainly there are periods in history where one side gets dominance over the other. Um, and we seem to be in a time just now where the idea that people are inherently good and the only thing that's wrong with them is the society around them—that seems to be very much in the ascendant—and um, a lot of the things that come with that. Um, therefore, I mean, for me, it's an immensely over—it's an immense oversimplification of what the human subject is. Um, I became aware of this reading Stephen Stephen Pinker's *The Blank Slate*. Um, where he, you know, he says that that utopian idea that we're all born good, you know, has absolutely no, um, no foundation in science, in neuroscience, in behavioural science, in 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 the science of the growth of human beings. You know, he cites some interesting examples. For example, many utopians will claim that a utopian society will get rid of lying and competitiveness. Uh, he he points out that lying is actually a, a, a neurological necessity in the development of children. For them, around about the age of like, from four to five, they they have to lie in order to work out where the parameters are between me and you: the consequences of truth telling or not. It's the awareness of the social contract, if you like, um, has to, uh, it's, it's a, a stage that they have to have to go through. Competitiveness as well, you have to... It's so paradoxical, competitiveness, because even those who say that competitiveness is a social construct compete with each other to shout it the loudest.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a worrying thing. I see my son in school... I, uh, the sports day now mm. there's no medals for the, 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 there's no winners yeah. everybody's a winner just for participating mm. and as this was happening even when he was in the early years I was thinking mm, I'm not sure if this is a great idea so what do kids grow up with learning what then? Well I mean see you this know. is a
3: really interesting one the non-competitive sports thing came, it came into effect powerfully in America around about the same time as, um, as President Obama's anti-bullying thing as well and they're both based on this blank slate notion that children are born a blank slate and if you don't teach them how to be competitive then they won't compete and if you don't teach them how to bully then they won't bully um but there were some adverse effects um, of the of the anti-bullying campaign um which that it didn't see a ra, um, uh, decline in the amount of bullying, but it saw an increase in the amount of bullying reported. So it seemed to, if you raise awareness of bullying and say you have a class full of kids and you're teaching them all about how bad bullying is, you get them to stand forward. Who's Who's been bullied in this class? One stands forward and then another one, and then they all look around to think, well, hold on, if I don't join in and say I've been bullied, then I'm going to look like a bully. So then you get these ridiculous statistics that come out of the anti-bullying campaign, which is 90% of children are bullied in in, in, in primary schools. Um, so there were also, some people claimed as well that the anti-bullying campaigns caused an increase of bullying, not just measurable bullying, but actual physical bullying, because it uh, some of the educational material as to what bullying was was something that kids just wanted to go and try out afterwards, you know. Yeah, mm.
2: it's kind of a natural thing mm. that children do. They're they're antagonistic. Yeah. It's a way of making sense of the world. Mm. Not saying that we grow out of it as adults, because yeah. we're all uh, you know. Well, there's
3: just that we can, uh, Yeah, there's just that whole question really of of whether or not there's such a thing as human nature. I mean, that's what Steven Pinker's blank slate was really all about. Was he was saying, look, the human sciences show that we're not born blank slates at all. We've got a lot of pre wiring. And it's, it's not just, you know, what we're taught um, and what our grandparents taught our parents. And it's actually stuff that's, that's here for the survival of the species. Um, and it, therefore that limits really the scope of what we can do with human beings. We, 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 can't, we can't create a perfect person. We can't create a morally perfect person. And therefore the outward conclusion of that is that we can't create a morally perfect society. Either we just have to kind of make do and do what little we can, knowing that humans have got an inherent flaw. Um, so uh, again, it's not a very popular idea, at, at, you know, at this time. It was it was largely the Christian worldview, I have to say. You know, it's also 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 the Buddhist worldview. You know, it's, it's, it's the non perfectibility yeah. of human yeah. beings.
2: In the book *The Blank Slate*, I think he talks about the idea that if we even mention the word nature at all, mm-hmm. it's considered controversial, at least today. Mm. Uh, but looked down on, and people are vilified even, even for mentioning the possibility that humans have have a, an in, something inherent that's in our genes or our biology.
3: Mm. Well, for me, it was through years and years and years of therapy I worked out that most of my social problems resulted from the, some double whammy of sorry, my, my psychological problems resulted from the double whammy of having idealistic parents who turned a blind eye to reality and the fact that I was horrifically bullied for many years when I was a kid and had a stammer um, probably because I had hippie parents actually and didn't fit in at all um, so that really made me question the whole thing about whether Bullying was a social construct, and when I was seventeen and went to art school, I was utterly convinced that bullying was a social construct. So much so that I, I, um, I realized that you know, uh, I wanted to change the world. You know, I became very politically motivated when I was, you know, just coming out of my teens. Um, and I thought, well, if we can end violence, violence is the, the thing that I suffered from personally. So therefore, if we could create a better society where violence was not allowed, then that would be much better for everyone. And uh, so it was drawn into drawn into communism. So it was very... Uh, I was a member of the um, Socialist Worker Party, Trotskyist organisation. Um, so for me, there was a very direct link between the idea that 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 violence is a social construct, and then the political ramifications of that, which are that we therefore have to change society completely to end violence. Um, of course, it was only later on, much later on, that I discovered the horrific um, legacy of violence and genocide within the communist t- tradition. Uh, and so, th- so for me, that was that was a big sort of wake up call, really. Um,
2: So, when you say, can I just Mm. ask there about uh, you said about uh, bullying being a social construct. What does that mean exactly?
3: Well, from the progressive perspective that my parents had on bullying, um, the idea was that the only reason bullying was happening to me and my sister was because there were uh, uneducated, uninformed, unprogressive parents who'd raised children to to be violent, competitive, and intolerant. So, a bit like the progressive parent who would say that, oh, you know, um, if you raise kids to be racist, they'll be racist, and if you read, you know, raise kids to be sexist, they'll be sexist, and all we have to do is change the language, as it were, so that they don't think these thoughts. Um, with bullying, it's seen that you know, it's seen. From a traditional leftist position, bullying would be um, one of these things that's the fault of it's the fault of capitalism, in as much as it's a manifestation of the external forces in society that are competitive, and it feeds down into the children who are simply just acting out class struggle upon other kids. Um, so there's there's a there's a denial of the fact that 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 um, kids might. Enjoy bullying, thrive on bullying, be inventive with bullying um, just as apes are that there might be something natural in the forming of pecking orders uh, so um, so my parents were spectacularly bad at not dealing with bullying because they thought it was all it was all just the fault of society, and that we could we could you know they would rather do the the long march through the institutions to to change society than they would deal with the fact that. My sister and I were being you know made to eat grass and pushed in rivers and stuff.
2: Did you ever fight back?
3: No, strangely enough that was that was an odd one. I thought about that. I used to have this brain this this brain freeze that would happen when I thought about violence because I knew that violence was inherently immoral, so no I just I just kind of took it, which was um, which is which I would certainly not. Uh, encourage any kids to do uh, I would definitely say fight back for God's sake <laughs> uh, I mean the reason I talk about it's not so much that it's it's such a huge and important thing in my life although it was it's more that it's just one of these great holes in the philosophy of the black slate um, or in Rousseau's theory that we're born free but are everywhere in chains I mean we just can't explain. Why? If you were to put kids in a, in, a, in a white box with no exposure to history whatsoever, with no um, um, external corrupting infra, you know influences from patriarchy and capitalism, if you were to conduct an experiment, a blank slate experiment on raising children, you think you'd be horrified to find that they would work out ways to bully each other. And therefore, the experiment would prove that there is a human nature.
2: Right. In Nina X... Mm. I'm I'm making a, a box <laughs> shape with my finger because there is the idea that she is almost brought up in that white, um, box environment. How how did you come up with the idea for that? And
3: um, I came up with the idea of Nina X from there was, there were a couple of news stories that that started emerging, um, five six years, years ago, um, about. People who were now adults, but had been kids, who'd been brought up in in uh, Maoist uh, sorry that that's um, Maoists and Mao um, Maoist collectives in the in the eighties and nineties, and um, they were they were kind of social experiments. These these people um, it's, it's, it it goes on in a in a lot a lot of different cults um, where you have a lot projected onto the children of the cults, so they're going to be pure in one way or another. You have it in r- religious cults as well. The idea is that you you do not expose the children to the corrupt outside world. Um, so there was one story in London um, about the the I think it was the um, Workers Institute of. I'm reading this out now, the Workers Institute of Marxist Leninist Mao Zedong Thought. Um. And um, there was a fantastic book about a Maoist cult called the O, which stood for um, the organisation. Where the, the leader tried to control every aspect of the member's behaviour, including on uh, you know who who they would live with, who they would have babies with, how they would, w- when they would work, who they would work for. And they would have to write these diary reports. Um, which is very much a Maoist thing, you you have to keep a diary of your daily behaviour, you have to do a confession of all the elements of social conditioning that you're trying to shake off. So through the diary of confessions you're trying to become the pure socialist man, as Lenin called it. You're trying to critique away the elements of culture that have influenced you, and you're trying to to share with your comrades your project, to, to to purge yourself of all the capitalist things. So these were two um, real Maoist collectives that I'd read about that that, that had turned into cult behaviour and, 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 and had subjected young people to this kind of social experiment. And I just thought, well, this is like a... It's an extreme example of the kind of childhood I had myself. So I, I just wanted to to have Nina be um, the most extreme experiment in creating a blank slate child um, within, you know, a Marxist collective that ends up cutting itself off from the rest of the world. So that was the kind of framework for Nina X. And I did, um, you know, the paradox within the story or the driver within the narrative is that Nina, after she's been kept in this increasingly isolated collective, not allowed to see television, not allowed to hear the radio, not allowed to go outside, then at the age of 28 uh, is subjected to the confusion of modern modern capitalism and um, surviving outside the collective, which has collapsed. And, and so the book's really about whether or not she'll survive in this really rather confusing world that she's been thrown into um, with the, the, some odd marxist vocabulary vocabulary and mindset that you know that she's got she has to turn the meaning of everything around so she's got to stop calling the police the pigs for example especially when she meets them in person uh, and part of the comedy of nina is that she 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 tends to verbalize what she's thinking to people because she's never been told that that's not the wrong thing to do so she'll say hello to a pig. she'll say hello pig and then she'll go sorry you're not a pig Everything's the opposite now. greed is good. Um, capitalism is freedom. Hello, my name is Nina um, so it's um it's a kind of play with with the um a very horrible set of circumstances that's that someone was put into as a child. Um,
2: um, it's a pretty extraordinary book. I mean, I had no idea it's based so so much on a, a real story as well.
3: There's um, There was a fantastic book that I came across um, by, it was called Linguistic Engineering um, by Dr. Feng Wan-Yi. Um, It's published by the University of Hawaii. And it was a study of linguistic engineering in the Chinese Cultural Revolution and explained the four different techniques by which uh, um, something close to brainwashing is 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 um is achieved um so there's the the uh, the the active society wide destruction of specific words there's the f- forcing of new words into the vocabulary there's there's rituals of language usage and there's purging of people who use the wrong words and this all went on
2: well wow, that's extraordinary This all
3: went on in, in in the cultural revolution um and it's laid out beautifully in the book so within nina x I, I i tweaked the um the insistence on language in the book so i took a sort of political correctness to a ridiculous degree in the book so for example there's we know there's there's within marxism there's a, there's a critique of of the western ego and self and and i and me so in the book, Nina's not allowed to say "I" or "me" or even "you" for that matter. Um, and within her diary, she has to go and erase all incidents of, of you know, contaminated capitalist speak, like talking about the me and the self. And I like this, and I want this, and I need this. And so she's got to remove all these words from her diary. And within the book, um, you actually know, see that on the page because the words are 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 uh, in. in Grey rather than in black, where they've been um, erased. Um, so, yeah, no. I, w- what I wanted to do really was to, was take all of the cultural experiments of the Cultural Revolution in China and try to stick them into one collective, one house in the project to create to manifest Lenin's dream of the new Soviet man. You know, the the the. A child of the revolution, who will be taught how to think and how to speak. Every single thing that this child says must be correct, and and her diary is a form of auto-correction. Um, and the collective get together for struggle sessions, uh, you know, to to try to to um, weed out all remnants of um, corrupt capital. Sorry to weed out all remnants of contaminated capitalist speak. So so all 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 selfishnesses, all clingings and longings that are to do with the old way. Um and I, I mean it's a kind of a bizarre experiment for a child because she's she's given so little in the way of stimulus. And it's all very much to do with, with um really erasing the things that the adults in the collective feel guilty about. So within the collective there becomes problems about who are the child's who are who are Nina's most favorite adults given that she's not allowed to have a mother or a father because mothers and fathers are patriarchal so she becomes more and more attached to one of the comrades comrade Uma um, in the book who acts like a kind of mother figure to her and then there's the kind of dramatic and the effervescent comrade Jenny who's always saying the wrong thing and giving out hugs and she's like a bit of a hippie and is inappropriate um, and uh, so Dina has to sort of work out who her direct who who's going to be mum for her, you know. Um, and at the same time, the the comrades are sort of trying to erase those needs that she has for that contact. Uh, contact, and they're they're telling her that that you know to say someone is my favourite, you know, is ideologically incorrect. Or to say that I need a hug is also ideologically incorrect because it's exposing the flaws in our plan for raising you without these possessive needs. Um, and there's an amazing um, thing sorry, I say it's amazing, even though I wrote it myself. An amazing thing I stumbled across, which was the whole feminist debate about the body and um menstruation whether it, it comes from you, whether it's 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 a uh, it's something you own. It's brilliant. There's a there's a section in the book where Nina starts menstruating. She doesn't realise whether it's whether it's it's her or whether it's private. Pro- Has she made something? Does she own it? Is it private property? And it raises a huge set of contradictions within the uh, collective.
2: Yeah, it's. It, uh, I was actually reading back over today before I was getting to chat with you. And there's so much I actually missed the first time around that you pick up. It's such an intricate jigsaw mm, in a way. Mm. Like you've so many things that when you read back over it, you're like, oh, my God, that fits in there. But she's talking about her privates mm. or as one of the comrades yeah. says, your privates and she says, oh, it's private. But I thought everything wasn't, was public. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and there's, <laughs> there's a, there is a lot of humour in it. It's, it's brilliant. I, I'd be reckoning, I will be recommending it to my book
3: club. Fantastic.
2: Can we get back a little bit mm-hmm. then? And I know it connects with it to the road to hell. Yeah. Um, which uh, the, the, the heading on that article actually goes on to say the rate the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Like, should we have good intentions?
3: I think we should have good intentions, but something, some th- there's a kind of chain of problems that come when we have good intentions. One is that Sometimes the kind of people who are drawn towards good intentions are more about parading good intentions than they are about achieving things. So those with good intentions should always be wary of, you know, the bonos of the world, who, who just want to, you know, wave a flag and then they'll bugger off before they find out what's actually happened. Um, you know, Live aid's is a really good example of that, and I quote that in the essay, um, if I can get the the actual stats. From the essay and the link, um, but but um, Livy did not achieve the the great goals that it set out to. Um, what it ended up actually doing was was putting billions of sorry millions of pounds in the hands of an Ethiopian dictator, um, and helping to continue a war and exacerbate a war that was already going on and was the cause of the famine in the first place. One of the problems with good intentions, though, is it's very easy to have two or three words, like, say, feed the world, whatever, and to get together in a euphoria of positive, well-wishing, en masse together in a big mob, and all feel really good because um, in this godless world, if you like, it's very hard to position yourself as moral in any way. So if you've got something to rally behind, a great cause, you really get to feel good about yourself. I mean, I remember when Live Aid happened, you know, we were all weeping at home watching our TV screens, feeling we were finally doing some good in this hostile world. Well, well, here comes stage two And the problem with idealism, though, is, is that when things don't go well, the evidence gets buried. The evidence has to be buried, so you don't see news stories about how Live Aid went wrong. How funds were misallocated, how they can, how they fed a war. We'll still have. Do they know it's Christmas playing every Christmas, and we'll still feel good about it, even though the actual results were not at all what what um, what. Happened.
1: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Confidence starts
0: with loving who you are.
3: A third thing is that the larger the scale of the good intentions, the bigger the law of unintended consequences becomes. So um, a really good example of the law of unintended consequences was Chairman Mao's um, idea in the Cultural Revolution. It was a project called the Four Pests Project. So he was very big on mobilizing the masses into doing things together to to whip up a sense of you know collective progress and all the rest of it. So the four pests project was a project to get rid of um, bugs that spread diseases and that and that decimated um, uh, food production. So there was there was uh, there was mosquitoes that had to be got rid of because they carry malaria. There were rats because they contaminate rice. There were sparrows because the 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 steel rice uh, and I can't remember what the fourth beastie was um, but the actual outcome of the four pests project was with the eradication of so many birds and you see this incredible footage um, from the cultural revolution of little children coming with wheelbarrows of dead sparrows that they've caught and they dump them into these sort of big graves and, and you know uh, their parents turning up with long metal spikes covered with about 100 little Sparrows like kebabs. The outcome of all of that was there was nothing uh, to eat. You know, to eat the big insects when the big insects came—the locusts, the beetles, uh, the um, slugs—all of these um, unconsidered pests that were not part of the master plan um, overcame the crops in the next year, and this contributed, you know, to the great famine, Mouse great famine. Um, which again is one of these things which was was hidden by history. So when a, so when a great ideological project to to make everything better for everyone goes completely wrong and ends up killing millions of people. I mean, literally, there were there were um, thirty to forty five million people who died in the Great Chinese Famine. Um, I, of course, it was to do with other things. Rather than just the sparrows, it was also to with mismanagement, with quotas, with with enforced collectivization. But it was all part of of the great leap forward, this ideological project to make China progress swiftly. The concealing of the failure becomes then stage two of the idealistic project. So, when the good intentions collapse, you then got You've you've got, history has to see the good intentions as being carried out. So you've suddenly got many enemies who know the actual data and the facts. They know where the bodies are buried, if you like. And they become a real problem. So um, we see this again and again with the idealistic projects within history, is that there's been a, a sort of purge of those who question the outcomes.
2: That ties into the idea of cults. And I've come across this idea that when a person is in a cult, a, a fact will occur that discounts the material that they believe. Mm. And you think that that means that they will change their mind, mm. but actually the reverse happens. Mm. Is that right? You've researched a lot on cults. I yeah, think.
3: no, I've, I've studied... Um, I studied a lot. Um, Jim Jones was a fascinating cult. Um, Again, Jim Jones is one of the great idealists. If you look into if you look into the history of Jim Jones, it's absolutely shocking. It's it's he began as this Marxist revolutionary who was helping helping hundreds of of black people, basically in in um, in um, San Francisco and um, Chicago before that. Um, he was creating homes for old people, he was doing food deliveries, he was uniting them all in this uh, church that was was um, then being used for political rallies and, you know, getting behind the Democratic Party. If you There was a thing where if you ever wanted a couple of hundred people to turn up to a civil rights um, march, then you got on the phone to Jim Jones and Jim Jones was there with, you know, with his his congregation. Um, and it, you know, Jim Jones looked like a great pioneer of, of um, progressive idealism. And for it to end um, apparently inexplicably in the jungles with the death of 989 people who, who'd taken the cyanide Kool Aid, we don't tend to put it, thread that together, how that actually happened. How could it go from this great idealist project to this, this horrific genocide? this murdering of children. Um, and a lot of it was to do with the mechanism that you just described there. So when Jim Jones decided to move to Guyana, um, he had this idea that just because he thought you could build a utopian community from scratch, that it would work. So it's, it's what we call the idealist fallacy. Um, it's like the intentional fallacy, you know, just because I want something to happen, it's going to be exactly like the way that I predicted it. We all mean really well, so therefore we're not going to have any trouble clearing an area of, of, of uh, tropical forest. We're not going to be completely unind- you know, inundated with flood water, with malaria, with the inability of Americans to adapt to tropical climates. We're not going to have any trouble trading... We're not going to have any trouble with roads and access. I mean, they were they were just plagued with all of these problems. Anyone who tries to create a utopia in the tropical jungles, and there have been many attempts to do so, including even the Nazis. Um, they've all, they, and uh, so, sorry, not 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 just the Nazis, but um, oh, who was the tire manufacturer who tried to was it Fordlandia? They're a, Ford uh, tried to actually create a utopia in the jungles of the uh, tropical South America as well um, but these things are are doomed to fail because because you know you're taking a Western idea of um, of the blank slate you know and you're meeting nature you're meeting nature that doesn't know about the blank slate it doesn't care about the blank slate it doesn't you think you're erasing all traces of, of corrupt civilization, but you're, you're, you know, you've got swampland conditions that, that are your foundation for your, for your new utopia. Um, so basically what happened with Jim Jones was people started saying, Jim, this is not going to work. Uh, and he would go, well, it's because you don't believe enough. So you'll, you'll be punished by, by everyone else. And because they were miles from anywhere, The punishments became extreme and cultish, like digging uh, graves for people and making them sit in them um, or lie in them for for a whole day while people would hurl down Marxist abuse at them for how they didn't believe in the project enough. Um, There were group beatings. Um, There was um, people having their children taken away from them as punishment as well and given to other parents to take care of. so basically, you had unregulated because they thrown away all the social mores of Western civilization, and that was part of their project to start with the blank slate. You know, um, they very soon realized that they could get away with doing anything to anyone that disagreed with them. So, so silencing of all opposition became a big part of the Jonestown.
2: But did they did they willingly take the the pills then that killed them?
3: Yes. Yes, I don't believe in the conspiracies that say the CIA came in and shot them all. Um I the um the Jonestown ma- massacre, it was it was this perverse hybrid of Christian apocalypticism and Marxist millennialism or millenarianism, you know. Um there was this idea that it would be better to die, die a revolutionary martyr to the cause of progress than for their um, failed utopia to be destroyed by America. So, basically, Jim Jones, on the one hand, he he clamped down on everyone in his failing utopia, in his mud quagmire in the middle of the jungle. Um, it became incredibly authoritarian, even though it was utterly dysfunctional. Um, no one could escape. No one could report back on it. And he became obsessed with the idea that the Americans were coming any minute now to come and shoot them all. So when... Um, a few of his his uh, his his comrades or disciples um, managed to get letters out to to um, Senator Ryan. It was at that time about how they want there was mistreatment and how they wanted to return to America. And uh, When Senator Ryan turned up with some um, reporters in a small airplane, um, well, we all kind of know where it went from there with the with the uh, the um, shootings, but. Um, Jim Jones was convinced after this had gone completely wrong after the American journalists and the senator had come um, that um, that it was only a matter of days until they were all going to be wiped out by you know american troops so so, so they went through a process that um, Jones had been training them in for years before you can hear the audio recordings they are actually online um, now was it White Knights or Black Knights? I can't remember what it was called, but it was it was he trained them in revolutionary suicide techniques and they would go through this drill every now and again where um um the the um, cyanide would be mixed, the statements would be made. So, so so the actual time when they did it, they did they'd been um They've been trained how to do this and how to accept this. And you get a horrible kind of groupthink that happens in these situations. I think that's what's so terrifying about cult behaviour and about um, political conformism as well. Is that it, is, it, there comes a point in the proceedings of, say, uh, an attempted mass suicide where it's, it's easier to go along with it. And just kill yourself than it is to face the horror that you might have to oppose all these other people who've all decided that this is a good thing and they might all be like you they might all doubt that this is a good idea, but because it's the dominant story, everyone goes along with it
2: did anybody escape
3: there was a, an amazing um amazing story about an old an old woman who'd hidden under a bed while while it was going on they had kind of bunk beds, collective spaces where they they lived in, kind of dorms. It was all very makeshift. So she was under this little metal bed while it all went on. Maybe she fell asleep or something, we don't know, but basically she woke up and walked out when it was over. So she she basically walked out of the room, through the corridors. So... Dead mothers and babies, and then gradually out onto the the ground of Jonestown, uh, where there were nine hundred eighty nine people, all all lying dead, um, bloating in the summer sun. I mean, extraordinarily horrific. But I mean, for me, it's just a huge warning shot whenever we become really idealistic about things, about how the more epic your ideal. And the closer it comes to blank slate social engineering, the more bloody dangerous it is. Talk
2: to me. Talk to you. Talk to me. I'm um, one thing in another of your articles that you talk about uh, uh, cults. And one of the things that's used in cults is love bombing. Mm. You can see that in a lot, like I see it on Facebook posts. Yep. People love everybody, love everybody. I'm like, well, <laughs> love can actually be something that's dangerous. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think love can be dangerous then in that sense? The concept of it. You
3: mean love in the broader sense? Or or just love in the sense of love bombing when you join a cult?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think both actually <laughs> <laughs> But love bombing in a cult, but like then cults aren't necessarily always religious either are they no
3: indeed indeed well, let's go with love love bombing in cults i mean it's a clever it's a clever technique, and it was it, i think it probably peaked in the sixties actually i remember there was there was one cult called the family that was one of the things they were called for a while they were a they were kind of a hippie Christian cult they were eventually um broken up because of pedophilia accusations because if you put hippies free love and kids together that's always going to happen and it's happened again and again and again if you throw away all social conventions all care of who's the parent and all the rest of it then kids will get roped into the sexual antics of the hippie utopians that's for sure and there's been countless cases of of this going on anyway the family had a thing called flirty fishing which was a love bombing taken to its extreme so basically they had these you know young girls 16 to 20 whatever who were converts to this christian cult and they would offer sex if you'd come along to to one of their group meetings and they would offer more sex if you came along to one of their you know weekend seminars and then you know it roped in a lot of um, a lot of young men into the, um, into the cult, and the promise we see what happens within most cults is they start off with you know the group hug, the welcome to the alienated person who's lacking in, in love or, or sex, and then the, the, the as you move through levels of engagement up the ladder of involvement, then the love gets shifted on to the leader. So you've got to, you're you're a flawed and broken person in the eyes of the cult. So you, after being told that you're great to start with, then you're flawed and you've got to work on yourself, and you know so you can win the love of the leader. This is just one of these processes that that is common to cults, whether they're um, you know like Nexium was which, which like a lifestyle cult. That was the one that was in the papers last year. It's all—it's all about self-improvement and and uh, you know, uh, women in industry. You know, getting ahead as a, as a powerful woman and all the rest of it. Um, although their leader was a male who insisted that they be branded with the symbol on their body, um, you get it within within these um, religious cults. You even get it within within cults like ISIS as well. I would I would. I would, as others like Steve Hassan, the cult specialist, characterize ISIS as a cult. Um, you know, the the love that you are seeking is 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 the is the embrace of the virgins in the afterlife, and it's also you know the love of God. Um, so, yeah. So so cults will get you in the front door with the promise of um, a bond, a fraternity, a sorority, a sense of being with others who've unlike everyone else you are so lost you poor soul and we're just like you and we and we'll weep with you and hug you and tell you we love you um, but you have to come along to the, you know the week-long extended um, introduction course and then then would be really good if you came to live with us for a month uh, and it just goes from there really
2: right. Um, nice. It's fascinating, mm. like the idea of cults, and that they're that could be secular and religious, totally. and yeah. Um, I think There was one thing. I yeah. I... yeah. Go on. Sorry, I think
3: actually they all come from one root, though, which which is um, which is back to um, an original Christian heresy. Um, there was um, there was the uh, there was, Pelagius the Pelagian heresy the Pelagian heresy was pursued and hunted down by the Catholic Church because they realised how damn dangerous it was. And Pelagius basically said, we, we don't have to wait for heaven, we can build heaven on earth. So that was, that was the great heresy. And I think it underlies pretty much all, all cults, apart from the the ones which are, you know, the things like the UFO cults, which believe people will be zapped up into outer space to go to heaven. But But certainly this idea of, separatism and of cutting ourselves off from the world because we're going to make a, 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 a you know a paradise here for ourselves is, is is a common theme to all to all cults
2: right so be careful of idealists <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah especially if they say leave the world behind and come and join us yeah
2: yeah and um, there was two things you mentioned early on which i wanted to ask you about I, I don't know what one of them was. It could have been SDS. SOR, oh, yeah, yeah. The- and, and the Weather Underground. Mm. Well, what are they?
3: Um, so the SDS were um, Socialists for Democratic Society. were an American organisation and they were very hard left. They were Maoist as well. They had lots of, lots of Maoist um, beliefs. Maoist beliefs being different from standard um, Marxist beliefs. And as much as Maoism doesn't want to wait for history to reach the point where revolution will happen, Maoists believe you can just cause it right now, right now, and you will do it as violently as possible um, or as secretly as possible, um, and that you're kind of granted um, special powers and special permissions to destroy culture um, because the end justifies the means. So when you hear people sh- chanting phrases like "by any means necessary," it's a good old Maoist expression, really, that filtered through America. Um, it's it, it's a rather long story, really, um, and a bit too complicated for people who want to know how we got to where we are just now. But um, there's a there's a direct. Descendants from Maoism through the French intellectuals and the the the, the failure of the revolution in 1968 in France, um, so Maoism became this sort of dominant intellectual form of rebellion and and um, then migrated over into America through people like the SDS and um, through Marxist intellectuals in. Universities who 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 took the ideas of Maoism. Um, one of the big one of the big ideas that's within Maoism that we see within postmodernism really is just the idea that you change society by changing all representations. You know, so you, you control all images and you control all language. As you know, as I was saying um, in the in the Cultural Revolution, there were these methods to control the way people spoke.
2: And did it work?
3: Um, well, well, yes. <laughs> yes, it did in as much as the Communist Party is still there in China.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways, I was thinking it's not that uh, those methods aren't effective in what they set out to yeah. do. To a certain extent,
3: they are. Well, there's... You see, I, when I was researching the book, I had to ask myself the question, does brainwashing work? And I have to say that it, it's only possible to say that it does with certain big qualifications. It doesn't work as a set of technical um, practices. So you can try to control people's language and the things they say and the things they see, and you can control the context that they're in. But there's some wonderful part of a human being which is always sceptical. And will always try to work things out for themselves. And it's the, actually, it's the only hope that we've got, really, for human beings. It's something that resists um, the totalitarian impulse to control everything. So on that level, brainwashing doesn't work. On a societal level, however, if you're pushing these techniques of control, of control of language, of um, informers everywhere, of, of strict language codes, if you create a society where transgressors of the code are constantly punished and everyone's monitoring everyone else, as you do in a totalitarian state, whether it be um, East Germany after the Second World War, in which I believe one in three people were informers. Extraordinary. Um, or the Soviet Union or, or uh, communist China. Um, then you can achieve the outward effects of brainwashing because everyone's simply too scared to be seen, to say anything or think anything that doesn't um, fit the party line. Um,
2: God, I think I can see that today like <laughs> on social media.
3: <laughs> do you? Well, well um, yes, I do, um, and it's 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 part of a it's part of a lineage, really. It's just it's evolved from the same stuff. From the
2: maybe that's also part of being human. Then is it?
3: Um, I guess there's the there's the herding thing that we do which is really quite scary so um the witch. herding so so we become herded quite easily as a species you know like
2: oh like a herd, like of, cows. A herd of cows
3: or like a herd of sheep yeah, yeah psychologists have been looking at this there was a study I think it was in Bristol a couple of years ago where they showed that um, you can get a hundred people to follow five pretty much anywhere um, if you've got people who are leading a group of, of others others will just follow um quite simply there's been all these horrible tests in um, psychology that prove that we've not got as much free will or we don't exercise it as much as we think we do so i've
2: seen this really um funny and strange experiment where they have people set up in a room and when the door opens did you see that one when the door opens everybody except the person who, who doesn't know what's going on stands up every time a new person comes in and eventually the person who doesn't even know why anybody's standing up just joins them
3: that's that's hilarious there's the famous elevator one have you heard of that one elevator. the elevator one so there was an elevator test a bit like this where they had six people who were placed in an elevator and one test subject who didn't realize that that was the test that they were doing so i think it was something like every time they went down a floor, everyone in the elevator would turn and face the opposite direction, even though they're facing the wrong way. And then they would turn the other way. So they basically, in in the in the course of like seven floors with this movement, they they trained the person who didn't know what was going on to do the same thing, and the person did do the same thing, turned round for no particular reason at all, just because the others were and felt they felt they had to just copy, or otherwise they would be stared at.
2: Oh my god. I mean, you'd think, what are we all doing? <laughs> we're all probably doing things like that. We don't even know if we're doing them.
3: Well, I guess I guess maybe there's some kinds of um, defence mechanisms that we traditionally had against um, group mobbing and herding instincts. Um, I guess, the again, to go back to the Christians, I'm, I'm, I struggle to, uh, for a year I was raised an anti-Christian by my parents and I... These days I come back to some of the possible merits of a Christian worldview. But the idea that you're only ultimately accountable to yourself and to God and that that you're going to make mistakes because you're a fallen person is probably a better way of... It's one of the checks and balances against herd mentality. The conscience, an extraordinarily well-developed conscience, uh, might... Stop you from just simply copying other people.
2: That's it for this episode of Spokes. You'll find links to Ewan's website and some of his articles in the show description. Thanks for listening. Spokes is produced by Colette Coffer and Terry Hackett.